Loving the gospel. The gospel is a bit of a Christianese word for me. I, I think it's a, uh, one of those words that suffers from being used a lot. And sometimes we, we don't quite um, have a working definition in our minds. It's also used in popular culture in various ways. And so it's good for us at the beginning to just define it and to give it kind of its term. Does anyone here want to be brave and, and shout what they, they, they think the word gospel means, just in its core? Not a trick question. Does anyone want to risk it? Good news. Yes, there we go. I asked Chloe, she's like, it's good news, Alad. Everyone knows the gospel means good news. And, uh, and it does, you're right, it comes, um, the word gospel it comes from the old English, Anglo-Saxon, Godspiel, which sounds super Swedish to me. I think it means good game in Swedish, like Godspiel. Um, I don't know if it's related in any way, but the old English, Godspiel, means um, good news and is translating the Greek word evangelion. So when we read the word gospel in the New Testament and uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's often the word evangelion that translates into gospel or good news. And so this morning, we're going to ask the question, what is the good news? Um, what makes it good? What makes it news? And we're going to look at what it means for us as a church, both as individuals and corporately as a group of people, to have and to say that the gospel or the good news is part of who we are. It's our part of our DNA. As Jobin said, we've already, we've already looked at what does it mean to be a church that loves God. We love God. We want to be known for a church that love God, that worship him, that prize him, that put him at the center, that put him first in everything we do. We want to be a church that loves this city and the nations that we're part of. We want to be a city, a church as well that, that loves to meet and loves to gather. What does it mean then for us to be a church that loves the good news? Uh, and that's the question that we're looking at this morning. To do that, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to find it in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15. There's lots of passages that I could go to to get a kind of a summary of the gospel. But perhaps this is the most clear and uh, succinct that Paul is giving. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in, uh, in Corinth, which is sort of southern Greece. And uh, in this part of the, the letter, he wants to remind them of what the gospel is and give a definition. Just to be clear, this is what I mean when I say the gospel. So it's a good starting point for us if we're going to talk about it. So 1 Corinthians 15, there it is. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Apologies, I was giving it absolute beans during worship. My throat is, is gone. Oh, great. So, 
here's Paul giving us a, a definition, a, a, a clear retelling of what the gospel is. And, and notice there's a, a, a lot here that Paul wants to remind the church about something he's, he's already preached to them. He's saying, guys, do you remember when I was with you and I told you all of this stuff? Let me remind you again what that was. And it's the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah in context, Jesus Christ. And he says to them that this news is foundational. Look at uh, verse 1 again. The gospel I preach, which you received, and on which you take your stand. You stand on it. It's the foundation of your life. It's foundational. It's of first importance. In other words, the first thing he wanted to get clear to them when he met them, when back in, when he was there in the church in Corinth, the first thing he wanted to say is, guys, let me get this clear for you, the gospel. It's your foundation, it's of first importance, and it's the source of their salvation. This is a, this is a big, I mean, it's the, the big deal. This is it. It's the source of your salvation. If you want to know how you're saved or what saves you, if you want to know where salvation's going to come from, it's in this sentence I'm about to remind you of, the gospel. It's the good news, which, by the way, is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to a whole list of people. It's what Paul is saying here is that there's this good news and it has such importance. It's the foundation of your faith. It's the source of your salvation. And don't, don't just take my word for it. You can, you can go and ask. There was witnesses. In fact, he makes the point, doesn't he, that many of the witnesses are still alive as Paul writes. It would be a mission, but they could travel from Corinth to Jerusalem. They could meet other people. There was a big dispersion of early church uh, Christians who went out into the nations and told the story, who told the news of what they had seen and what they had heard, of what this Jesus, this man Jesus had done, and then how they'd crucified him, and how he'd risen again, and they saw him, and they ate with him. He's saying, don't just take my word for it. So he defines the gospel then as... Here in these verses, Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures, and he appeared to witnesses. Romans 1 actually gives a similar description, and there's another verse we could have looked at, but it emphasizes slightly other events. And I think that's helpful for us because it, re it makes us realize, I don't know if I put Romans 1 up there, if you actually, if we do have Romans 1, oh, wait, go back. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, in Romans 1, uh, he talks about giving a similar, he's a similar description, but he emphasizes other things. In other words, uh, it's okay, we don't need it. Uh, in other words, uh, we can, you can get quite, um, people can get quite uh, controlling about what the gospel must be. This, 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 and this. And if you don't say this, 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 and this in this order, you've not presented the gospel. But that doesn't seem to be true in scripture. It seems to be that there are things that are important. What the good news, it's there's things that we probably want to make sure you get in there. But actually, when you realize it's very broad, notice he says twice, according to scriptures. And Paul's referring to the Old Testament scripture, which 
Jesus isn't directly mentioned by name because he wasn't alive during the times of the Old Testament scriptures as a man. So the whole of the Old Testament, Paul is saying, somehow points to and bears witness to this amazing good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, the whole of the Bible is the good news. That's what Paul is saying. The whole of Scripture is the good news of the gospel. Faithfully unpacked, understood rightly, we can look to any page of Scripture and see a picture, a painting, a portrait, an image of part of the narrative, part of the story of this good news on every page. That's what Paul is saying. And because it's in accordance with Scripture, as Paul says, because it relates to these Scriptures, it means that this story, this amazing message, this gospel, good news, was 2,000 plus years in the making. The gospel, the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, isn't a, a kind of God reacting to the events of the Old Testament it's the fulfillment of, it's the climax of that story. It's not uh, the, the, the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus' death and resurrection takes place. That's not like a surprising twist. You know, you watch some films, and then at the end you realize, you know, the classic in Sixth Sense, if you've ever seen it, I'm sure we can ruin this one for now, but Bruce Willis, his character, was dead the whole time. That's the twist. And when you first watch it, you're like, he was dead the whole time. Jesus' death resurrection is not a twist at the end of the story. It was a bit of a surprise twist for those at the time because of the way that they were reading scripture. But as you look through the Bible, as you look through and read from Genesis through, you see this was God's plan A and there was no plan B. That's amazing. But the main thing I want to focus on this morning, aside from all of that, is the idea, the importance of realizing that the gospel is good news and not good advice. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's news, in other words, of an event that took place in time. I've been to an event. Uh, you will all recognize this. This is the only football analogy you will ever have from me. A few weeks ago, Josh talked about Lord of the Rings, and it was embarrassing, but now I'm here to return the favor and do a football thing. See, in 2005, Liverpool Football Club, the, Liver the football club from which I, the city from which I come, I'm from Liverpool, they won what's called the Treble Cup, which I believe is actually three cups, not one. I think Josh explained to me this morning that they won three different leagues and therefore out of four leagues that were possible to win, and they won three of them, is a big deal. As you can see, the fans were out in force and I was there, ladies and gentlemen. I was there. I was there by this lamppost outside Liverpool Lime Street Station. I remember vividly where I was. I could take you there today except it's been bulldozed and it, it no longer exists. But I was there, I saw the victorious Liverpool Football Club coming on the big red bus, holding aloft three or one trophy, some form of cup, holding it aloft with the fans cheering and shouting. It, it didn't mean much to me, but if you were actually a Liverpool supporter, 
it, it was a momentous occasion, one which you still look back on and fondly remember, the time when we won the treble. I'm led to believe that Tottenham Hotspurs have never achieved such a feat. Amen. Amen. But if, if someone was to say, Josh, for example, Liverpool have never done anything good with their footballing careers, that they've never won or achieved anything, I can turn around and say, you're wrong. I was there. I saw it. I'm a witness to their greatness over a decade ago. Almost a decade ago. Wait, where am I? What time is it? What year is it? The gospel, the life, the death, the burial and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is attested to and confirmed by witness testimony. It's an event. It took place. It happened in time and space. And this, it makes Christianity unique as a unique claim about what it means to be a Christian. Remember at the beginning in those verses in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, hey, this news, this story is the foundation you build your life on. It's the, it's the thing that I, I, I gave to you. I told you this story and you've built your life on it. You've received it and it's where you get your salvation. What's, what's the story? What's the news? It's not 10 steps to success. It's not uh, now that you've become a Paulite. No, it's something that somebody else did years ago. That's the gospel and that's amazing. The gospel is about, for us, is, is, is claiming onto and holding onto an event that we had nothing to do with. This is important. Why? Uh, because the claim, the claim that Paul's making is found, uh, yeah, foundational, cornerstone of our faith. The source of our salvation is the good news of something that happened to someone else 2,000 years ago. And because of this fact, that the gospel is news, not advice, because of this, it kills pride. It kills pride for us individually because we can't follow a recipe for success if the success has been won for us. There isn't 10 steps to being a better Christian. I mean, there is. There is, that you can go online and read the blogs and, and, and all of that. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what the gospel is. That's not the good news. The good news is simply trusting in Jesus' death. When you know that your salvation was won for you by somebody else, there is no room for pride or boasting. Paul actually says just the same earlier on in the same letter, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says to these Corinthians in this letter, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence, fancy words, and human wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, the good news of what God's done. For I resolved to know nothing whilst I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Me and Chloe um, 
got Fitbits recently, in, in January actually. It's, it's a, a long, it's a two year health kick dream we've had that we're going to get fit at some point and a Fitbit's the way to do it apparently. So, um, oh no, what, go back one more. We're still on 1 Corinthians. Um, spoilers, we got married too. Um, <laughs> but we got these Fitbits and uh, the thing about the Fitbit, if you've never had one of these tracking things, and I, I tell you now, I hate it. I hate it. But I'll wear it because I bought it. Um, it, it measures your steps, how many steps you do in a day. And um, so me and Chloe have, comp- you know, how many steps have you got today? And I got to tell you, I consistently get way more steps than she does. I'm smashing steps out of the park. We're doing re- I'm, I'm doing really well. And then we went for the same walk around the same lake and checked our steps. And I was about 8,000 steps higher than she was. Maybe I've walked with more energy, I thought. So then we were sat down on the sofa for quite some time watching a film, and I managed to get about 80 steps more than she had, her zero steps and my 80 steps. It was then that I realized that uh, I had no reason to boast in my heroic step count. It turns out my Fitbit is overgenerous, giving me more steps than I've earned. Pride is deadly, and it's the root of all sin. The Bible tells us that pride is our heart's way of saying, God, I don't need you. God, I can do it myself. And we have, uh, all of us as humans, often uh, a like a sort of suicidal drive to try and do everything our own way and in our own strength and then have the audacity to say, look how good I am. The gospel kills that motive and that's very humbling and is part of the reason why it's a difficult message to hear. But we need to hear it because when you are faced with the awesomeness, the holiness, the greatness of God... And you kind of try and in that moment say, look how good I am. You'll realize that you're not really good at all. We're not really good at all. That our step count isn't really that impressive next to God's. Thankfully, we don't have to boast. We don't have to uh, look to show how good we are and fill up in ourselves our own goodness and our own morality and try and be 10 steps to be a greater Christian. We don't have to do any of that because our salvation, as Paul said, is rooted in, is based on a message, good news, a historical event 2,000 years ago that you had nothing to do with when The man, God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, came and lived a perfect life, got the best step count, died in our place, and rose again to prove that he was victorious over sin and death. The fact that the gospel is news doesn't just kill pride, but it kills doubt. You might not feel particularly proud of yourself, you might actually feel the opposite and feel like, why would God love me? I've messed up too many times. Just this week, I found myself again thinking, how could he love me? 
can I even call myself a Christian? I messed up in this way again, and I keep doing it. You can feel like we've failed. But don't you realize we have? We've massively failed. We were completely going our own way. We were dead to our sins. He wasn't mad at us, but he was filled with wrath and hot anger at the pain, suffering, humiliation, and dishonor that we, as humans, constantly bring into this world. The Bible calls this sin. We see it all around us. I see it in my two-year-old boy. I mean, he's two. But he is hell-bent on doing things his own way, even when doing things his own way is trying to swallow a battery. And I'm prizing it out of his hands, and there's snot, and there's tears, and there's rage, and he's trying to bite me and scream at me. I'm trying to save his life. That's what it's like to be a human with our God, who's doing all that he can to save us. And we rage and rail, snot streaming against him. That's what sin is. It's the situation, a condition of open rebellion against God. But it didn't stop him sending his own son to die. That is a good news that Paul told the Corinthians about. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Elsewhere in Romans, in a letter to the Roman church, Romans chapter 5, some of my all-time favorite verses, in chapter 5, verses 5 and 8, Paul says this, Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do I know God loves me? It's not because I've achieved the 10 great steps of being a Christian, and it's not in spite of my failings. There's no room for pride, but there's no room for doubt. How do I know God loves me? Because at the right time, all of those years ago, Christ died for me. The fact that it is good news, not good advice, means it kills our doubt. A good illustration, perhaps, of this is marriage. I got married to Chloe between three and four years ago. And um, not... we actually got married twice. Here we are on the 31st of May, 2019, in our apartment. And it was this lady, whose name I can't remember, who actually did the, the marriage to us. Uh, and the dog was an important part down there. He stood in between us the whole time as our witness. Uh, we had actual human witnesses too, just in case you call into question our marriage. Um, and then we had a, a ceremony and we were being prayed for there. Now, uh, me and Chloe have small children and so we also have very little sleep. And so you can imagine that arguments happen. And there's plenty of times when I 
forget to do something or fail in some way or just speak in a way that is not kind, not loving. And it causes problems. It causes tensions. I'm sure some of you have one time maybe been there with someone that you love. But I don't go from a situation in our marriage and think, oh, she's angry with me. I've messed up. I've really ruined things. I've really struck, uh, you know, struggling here in our marriage. She's, you know, there's, there's this... There's this awkwardness between us. Perhaps we're not really married. Perhaps we didn't get married. Perhaps she's not really my wife. Maybe that's what the problem is. No, that's not how it works. However I'm feeling, good or bad, we are married. It happened. There's the evidence. Here's the evidence. It's an objective reality. It's a historical event in which I now live. Do you see, that's what the gospel is. That's what the good news of the gospel is. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 5. God's love has been shown to us. You can know it, you can trust it, you can believe in it because all those years ago, Christ died for the ungodly, you and me. The proof of you being saved and loved by God isn't your success at work. It's not your financial security. It's not the perfect family in a model home. Evidence that God loves you and has showered you with blessing isn't your superior knowledge of the Bible. It's not your thriving prayer life or your amazing gifts of evangelism or whatever else. And in fact, you can't point to your track record of good behavior, your acts of kindness or charitable deeds as proof that you are loved. By God. Likewise, you can't hold up all your failures and say, therefore, he doesn't love me. You can't do any of those things. Success, failure are irrelevant to God's love for you. The certificate, the marriage certificate, as you, if you were, of God's love for you, that he loves you, that he is on a mission to do you good, was signed 2,000 years ago and is written in the blood of Jesus. The certificate of God's love and commitment to do you good was signed 2,000 years ago, not when you said yes to Jesus, but when he said, I love you and I will take your punishment on the cross. When he said in the garden, Lord, not my will but yours, I um, love the song. My favorite hymn is Before the Throne of God Above. And the second verse starts like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. I think so often when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, we do something else at that point. Pray a bit harder read your Bibles a bit more, you fill in the blank. The answer is, when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward we need to look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. So just to round it off to close, what does it look like for us as a church to be 
gospel-centered, to have the gospel at our heart, to have it in our DNA. What does a gospel church look like? Well, we declare the news to each other. That's what Paul's doing, isn't it? Hey, let me remind you of what I told you then. And that's what I've done. Let me remind you of what Paul reminded them. We're not adding anything to it. We're not changing it. We're not putting a clever spin on it. It's the same news for 2,000 years and will continue to be. It's the only news that matters. We declare it to one another. We remind one another continually. That's why every song we sang this morning, every single song we sang this morning had basically this summary of the gospel in it. That's why I was belting it. It's giving it my all because it's the gospel message. We sing together one to another. When I hear your voice declaring the good news of the gospel, it reminds me of the good news of the gospel. When I hear you encouraging someone or encouraging me of the gospel, don't assume I know it. I forget it every day. We find a way to either try and do it ourselves or to realize how badly we're failing and forget the gospel. That's the daily struggle. So I need you, you need me, we need each other to remind ourselves Sing the gospel, preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, pray the gospel. On Sundays, in small groups, in prayer, as we walk out, as you meet people on the tram, remind one another. Second thing that we would notice in a gospel-centered church is visible joy. I love this quote from uh, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was living in the 1500s. You can tell because of this engraving. Um, He's an old guy, and he, is, uh, he was put to death. He was burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Audacious and, and, and an amazing story. But he said this, Evangelion, the gospel, is the Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes them sing, dance, and leap for joy. Can you picture this guy? Leaping for joy. <laughs> but he said it, so I believe it. In his little frilly neckerchief, bouncing as he leapt. That's what I believe. Um, but that's what the gospel is. It's called good news. It's not somber news. It's not solemn news. It's not sober news. It's not really important news, although it is. It's called good news. And good things make us glad. If you're a Liverpool fan in 2005, you had good news to celebrate. And what did they do? They went out onto the streets and cheered and roared and threw things and all sorts. <laughs> Visible joy. How else does it look? Well, it means we live in the reality of that good news. Are we proud of our own achievements? Allow the gospel to humble you. Don't look at another person and think, I'm so much better than them. It, I mean, we, it's so easy, but it's, it's, we can't, you can't do that. We can't do that. The gospel doesn't allow it. The good news doesn't allow it. Allow, perhaps you're fearful or you doubt, you feel vulnerable, you know your failures. Allow the good news to give you assurance this morning. Allow it to give you hope. He loved you when you were at your worst. He knows your worst. 
whether that was behind you or whether it's before you now in time, is irrelevant. He knows the depths of your heart and he loves you the same. What else? A gospel church, people, a church with the gospel at our center, it means that we proclaim the good news to others. We remind one another of what we've already heard, but we also proclaim it to those who don't know it. We proclaim the good news. Good news is for sharing. And if it's news, then it doesn't really matter what anyone thinks of it, because it's objective reality. People can say that, I don't know, my marriage looks a bit ropey or on the rocks or whatever, but it, is, it did happen. It, the objective reality of it happening is unquestionable. I have a friend who I share music recommendations with, and I, know, I do that because I know he likes the same music as me. The gospel isn't like that. There aren't personality types for the gospel. There aren't people who like, will prefer it, so I'll go to them. It's good news for everybody, for the whole world. It's not advice, it's objective, historical, good news. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7 and 8 says this, just as nursing mother, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. A community dependent on living for with the gospel at our foundation doesn't just share the good news, but lives out in a way that shares our lives. It's our everything with one another out of love. We as a church have a prophetic promise over us. Many years ago, uh, we had a, a friend of our church come and, and speak into us, and she, one of the things that she kind of prophesied over us, spoke to us that God wanted to put at our heart was seeing new life, was seeing people who don't know the good news, who are living uh, like trying to do it all themselves, who are living for themselves and uh, don't know God, we would bring them in to knowing the gospel, sharing it with others. It's a part of who we are. It's why when we pray together, we regularly, if not always, pray for new life. We pray for people to be made aware of this good news and for their lives to be changed. <clears throat>